0: Continue our study through the book of Ezra. And Dustin, if you want to go ahead and put those slides up there from last week. Just kind of remind us of some stuff. Hey, let's pray real quick and we get going into this. Lord, once again, you teach, we listen. We just pray your Holy Spirit would lead, guide, and direct. And help us, Lord, just to truly understand what you want us to learn from this passage here, from this book. Because we want to be the people that choose to follow. We're not just hear, but to follow and hopefully make a difference in all we do and say in your name. Amen. All right, we started Ezra last week. Ezra, one of these historical books in the Old Testament. Now, this is one that we have not taught through before, and you may be saying, what are we supposed to be getting out of this book? If you weren't with us last week, let me just share a couple things. I love books like this, because you get a chance to dig in and look for details that you may normally not see. If you're a type of person, when you start hearing the Old Testament being taught, you think, I don't get this. This is kind of boring. Always look for the little details. If we truly believe that from Genesis to Revelation, this is wholly inspired God's word, that means there's a reason why it's in here. Every little detail. Always look for Jesus in it. Because when you look for Christ in it, remember Jesus said, the whole book is written about me. So therefore, there's evidence here of Christ, and what does this look like? Remember one of the details from last week. We talked about this, where was that? In chapter 1, we talked about how they brought 29 knives with them. Verse 9. Talked about the little details. There are twenty nine knives. If God cares about those little details, as we know in the Book of Matthew, He also knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through. Now, a real quick reminder on what's going on here historically in Ezra. Just remember, what had happened was the Jews were disobedient and they did not follow a Sabbath year. Last year, excuse me, last week we talked about how they were supposed to take every seventh year off, a complete year off. They didn't do this for 490 years. So God said, you owe me 70 years. So what happened was is they were taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. It was a spiritual timeout, if you will. God's loving way of saying, I want to get your attention. Well, when those 70 years were up and that prophecy was fulfilled, they started coming back to Jerusalem. They came back in three waves, And what you have here in the book of Ezra is the first two. Right around 538, 536 B.C., Zerubbabel returns, about 50,000 people. That's what we're dealing with right now. Then a few years later, Ezra returns. This is where the book picks up about halfway through, and they start doing spiritual reforms. The first thing you see is the temple being rebuilt. The next thing you see is spiritual reforms, and then Nehemiah happens as well, too, where they rebuild the walls. Next slide real quick there, Dustin, please. And you can also see some of the contemporaries. The prophets Haggai, Zechariah are during Zerubbabel and possibly Malachi. And just for a quick reminder, Esther is queen during this time as well. So when you're reading this and you're studying this, this is a historical book. That's about the return of the Jews from being in captivity for 70 years and going back and rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding its walls, rebuilding its temple. And what you're going to see is that they are actually rebuilding the walls and temple. They're also rebuilding themselves as a nation spiritually. Maybe you've looked at yourself spiritually and you kind of say, there is no temple. Corinthians says that I'm supposed to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not seeing that in my life. Proverbs tells me that I'm supposed to have walls built up around me to keep my marriage safe, to keep my walk with Christ straight. I see those walls crumbling down. Then really what is happening is here, you also need to rebuild spiritually your temple. Rebuild spiritually your marriage. Rebuild spiritually your walls. Same concept. Now, Ezra reads almost like a business report. It's very straightforward. And like I mentioned to you last week, do not be discouraged by that. Make it fascinating okay lord what is in here that you want me to learn so with that being said take a look at ezra chapter 2 does Doesn't that look exciting i think we should like read this chapter out loud together to fully get all these different words and what it means and represents now when you look at ezra chapter 2 you kind of say why Anytime I get a new believer that comes and they're excited about learning and studying the Bible, they always assume that you should start in the book of Genesis. And I usually tell them, don't start in Genesis, start in the gospel. Like, pick John. And once you get down with John, you can go to like a First John or a James or Acts. And they always say, well, I, I think I should start in Genesis. Genesis is great about the first three, four chapters. Then you start getting into chapters of genealogy. See, I remember as a young believer reading through the Bible and getting to a chapter like Ezra, chapter 2, thinking, Lord, am I sinning against you by skipping this? This chapter, though, is so important, it's almost repeated word for word in Nehemiah, chapter 7. Isn't that fascinating? This chapter is actually mentioned twice in the Bible because it's that important. What in the world are we supposed to get out of a list of the names of everybody who came back from Babylon to Jerusalem? This is how I want you to look at Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 is God's refrigerator. Okay, Just think of it as God's refrigerator. I'm in a season right now where my youngest, Tyrus, is making pictures all the time. And he makes a picture. He's excited. He comes to me. He has to explain to me what it is because I can't follow it. And sometimes I'll even take a pen and mark what he says they were just so I can remember. Then his next thing is he always wants the picture put on what? Refrigerator. Ezra chapter 2 is God's refrigerator. This is God saying, you know what? This may not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. If you'd ever come over to my house, I would say, hey, would you like to see all the pictures that Tyrus has drawn? Now, out of politeness, you'd say yes. And about two minutes into the 200 that I have, you'd be very, very bored. You look at Ezra chapter 2, and you're like, Lord, I I get nothing out of this. God says, oh, you don't get it. This is one of my favorite pictures. Because all these Jews right here, decided to leave the comforts of Babylon and come back to Israel to rebuild a temple for me. Now you may say, well, they left the comforts of Babylon. Uh, They were enslaved there. They were taken captive by Babylon. But what happened is 70 years later, the Medes and the Persians were now ruling and reigning. The Medes and the Persians ruled and reigned a little bit differently. Yes, they did not have all the rights and privileges but compared to coming back to a desolate wasteland of Jerusalem with nothing and starting from scratch Babylon was a whole lot better. So what you have in Ezra chapter 2 is God's refrigerator where he says these people made a sacrifice for me and that means so much to me that for all of eternity I'd not want it only recorded once, I want it recorded twice. Now, what that means is this. Every little sacrifice you make God hears, knows, and understands. So when you're at home and your spouse decides to say something that is not very nice, polite, or biblical, and you don't say a single thing back. In fact, you don't even even say a single thing back. You don't even make a facial expression. You don't even slam anything down. You do nothing. There would be no way the outside world would know that you didn't respond. And God says up in heaven, I saw that. I appreciate that. He marks that down. He remembers those things. And we have to remember when the Lord says this is important to remember, it's important to remember. He sees and knows everything and he writes these things down. He puts them on his little refrigerator and says, these people are important to me. Now, what are we supposed to get out of this though? Well, there's a couple of little housekeeping things that we need to do. Take a look at verse 36. You see the priests come back. That's obviously very important. They're coming back to rebuild the temple. You need priests. So this is important. You see a spiritual... Reformation happening here. Next, you see in verse 40, the Levites come back. Who are the Levites? The Levites were the helpers of the temple to the priests. So now the Levites are coming back to help. And not only that, we have more people coming back. Verse 41, you now have the temple singers coming back. So not only are we bringing back the temple and sacrifice, we're also bringing back the worship. You see the Lord bringing all these things and the importance of this coming back. And you see the Nephanim coming back in verse 43. And you may say, who are those? These would be temple servants that were not priests or Levites. Temple servants that were not priests or Levites. And what else do we have coming back as well, too? You see there about the servants of Solomon coming back. These are people that would have been descendants of maybe captives that Solomon had, that they're allowed to come back, and that's found in verse 55. So, you see all these different groups of people coming back. The priests coming back, the Levites coming back, the singers coming back, the Nethanim coming back, the children of Solomon coming back. It's quite the mixed group of people. And I tell you right now, if you just look across the body of Christ, it's quite the mixed group of people. And that's how God likes to work. We have Jews, we have foreigners, we have singers, we have priests, we have Levites, we have temple servants, we have foreigners that have been taken captive but decided they wanted to become Jews. And God says, I want you all, and you're all part of the body of Christ. I love that. I absolutely love that. What else do we have going on? They come back, and they have nothing. So what are they going to do? Verse 68, some of the heads of the Father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely... For the house of God directed in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Now, there's two points that I want you to look at. Take a look at verse 68. First off, they gave freely, and verse 69, they gave according to their ability. Can you go with me, please, to Second Corinthians chapter 8? Giving freely and giving according to your ability. You realize God doesn't force you to do stuff. I remember the first time I learned as a believer, God's not going to force me to do anything. He's not going to make me pray. He's not going to make me get up in the morning and do devotions. He's not going to make me witness. He's not going to make me go to church. He's not going to make me do any of that type of stuff. He wants me, on my own accord, to stop and say, this is important, and I choose to make time for this. When we did the mosque outreaches a couple weeks ago, we were talking to some of the Muslims up there in the mosque. They kept repeating this word. Obligatory. We have obligatory prayer so many times a day. We have obligatory this. We have obligatory that. They have to do it. Now, if the God you worship is forcing you to do it, that's not much of a free will worship. Now, they'll come and tell you that they choose to, but the word they use is it's obligatory. Can you imagine if your relationship with Christ was based on how many verses you read a day, how many hours you prayed a day, how many church services you attended? Now, that doesn't mean that, obviously, prayer and worship and reading the Word in church is not important. Those things are all important. God says it is. But your relationship with Christ is based on one thing, that you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He has taken away your sins, and he's forgiven you. That's the beauty of the cross. it for by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Because if you could pray your way into heaven, if you could read your way into heaven or witness your way into heaven, well, then it's now by works. Understand the beauty of grace. Now, when grace happens, there now comes a spiritual responsibility to say, if I have been so changed by the Lord, would I not want to now give up my time freely to give of the abilities I have that God has given me? And that's what these heads of the families did. They gave freely, and they gave of their ability. New Testament talks about this as well, too. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, starting verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, obviously, if you've been coming out here to Harvest, you know we don't pass the plate. I'm not trying to put that down. I know many churches do that. We've always looked at it as it's a free will. You give of your time and resources. There's a box in the back if you feel led to give. We never want anybody to feel pressured to do that. It's the same thing with many ministry opportunities. Now, we don't say it every time, but we try to. We try not to come to you and say, well, we need this. No, we want you to prayerfully consider getting involved with it. If we mention it and say, hey, here's an opportunity to serve, would you prayerfully consider getting involved with it? We're asking you to seek the Lord. Because we do not want you to feel forced, burdened, or pushed. We want you to freely choose to give of the abilities and resources that God has given you. Now, you may sit here and say, I can't. I got too much going on. Well, this group that just left from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem, they had a lot going on too. They just moved. They just are rebuilding. They have nothing. And that's why God recorded how amazing it was as they gave of their time, energy, and resources. Look at the group here in Corinthians that we're talking about. The churches of Macedonia, verse 2. Great trials of affliction out of their deep poverty they gave. They had a lot of reasons not to, didn't they? A lot of reasons not to. But what did they do? They wanted to, verse 4. Why? Because of the fellowship and ministry of the saints. See, what happens when you give of your time, energy, and resources, two things happen. Number one, you feel connected to the body of Christ. I am helping them. You may not feel led to go to Mexico this June, but you know what? You could prayerfully or even financially help those that do feel led to go. You may not feel led to be able to get involved in VBS, but you could give of your time and energy and resources to do that, etc. And you can give there, and as you do it, you're also stopping and saying, I'm ministering to the saints. But these people that gave had deep affliction verse 2 they were deep in poverty verse 2 now i'm not going to sit up here and be like some of those pastors that you see on the tv that says you know what i want you to empty out your wallets and trust that god will give you a seed gift of whatever x amount of dollars please remember this god is not an investment banker please don't ever treat the lord that way well you know what if i give 10 bucks i'm gonna get 10 back that's not a bad rate of return that's not of the lord and you will not see that in the bible you will not but when it comes to giving of your time, energy, and resources, I would just want to remind you in verse 2, none of you have enough time. None of you have enough time. Because if you had enough time, there's so much more you would be doing, right? I mean, it's hard to find time. It's even hard to find time to come out to church. It's hard to find time to make time to read in the morning. It's hard to find time to go serve. And what would happen, the church of Macedonia would look you in the eye in verse 2 and say, yeah, do you know our afflictions and our poverty? We made time to do it. I just read a great devotional. And it was talking about how people who are always on that borderline of just despair and discouragement. there's a Greg Laurie devotional, and Greg Laurie kind of made the point, he goes, what he has noticed is those people that are always on that borderline of despair and discouragement are never reaching out to help others. They're so focused on themselves and so focused on what's going on with themselves that they can't even think about others because woe is me, No one has ever had a bad job like I've had. No one has ever had health like I have. No one has ever struggled like I have. No one's ever had a bad marriage like I have. And so we spend all of our time in this little pity party. When really the Lord is saying, look past that and start blessing others. And when you start serving others, your perspective changes. I'm going to be honest with you. I do a lot of counseling with people that are on that borderline of discouragement and despair. And when I bring that up to them, in the 20 years I've been out here doing stuff... Not a single one has ever stopped and said, Boy, you're right. I'm just thinking about myself way too much. Thanks, James. I'm going to keep my eyes on the cross. No, they usually get frustrated, upset, and they leave. I was just doing counseling with a couple last year, and the guy was very focused on himself. He got up and walked out. So it was just me and his wife right there. And I'm thinking, Well, what do we do now? Some people don't want to look at it from any other perspective. Church in Macedonia stopped and said, Our poverty... Our affliction is not going to keep us from ministering to the Lord. The people in Ezra chapter 2, we're going to give according to our ability. I don't know what your ability is, but you got time, you got energy, you got moments to pray. Please use that. Jump ahead, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is pretty straightforward here, too. Verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now be careful. Now, if you just read that verse, once again, we're back to that investment baker mindset. I got a big bill coming up. I only got a 20 in my wallet. So I'm going to give this 20, trusting that the Lord is going to do some amazing things. Be careful. Because the full context of it, keep reading, verse 7. So that each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to cheerfully stop and say, I want to invest in the kingdom, either with my time, my energy, or financially, etc. I want to do that. Now, I firmly believe and teach that there is a responsibility as believers where we should invest with our time, energy, and financially as well, too. And so what happens if somebody comes up and says, well, I'm not a cheerful giver, so I'm not going to do anything? My response back to that is, well, then figure out why you're not a cheerful giver. (laughs) Because any finances you have are not yours. It's the Lord's. The Bible says you're a steward. The Bible says in James, you're a vapor. You don't even have time. Have you ever thought about that verse in James where it says, you know, we're going there. Can you go with me to James, please? This verse is, this verse is so important. And this is one of the biggest sins I see in the body of Christ in my life and everybody's life. Can you go with me to James, please? James, um, James chapter four, please. I'm a steward of the Lord. My house is not my house. My car is not my car. My finances are not my finances or the Lord's. Whatever he says to do with it, I want to do. My time is not my time. You know, when Paul starts out his epistles in the New Testament, he uses this term that he's a doulos. He's a bondservant. So therefore, as a bondservant, my whole life is, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, look here at James. Just really look at this verse and ask yourself, do I really believe this? James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. God just told you in James 4 and me that any time I choose to make plans... And totally ignore seeking the Lord on it. He just told me in verse 16, that is evil. Who am I to plan anything? And I see it. I see it happen in the body of Christ. We change careers. We move. We do this or that. And we do some trite little prayer. Oh, Lord, your will be done. We don't really stop and say, Lord, I am a vapor. I am nothing. Who am I to plan anything? Lord, I believe this is what you laid on my heart. I believe this is what you want. Verse 15, if you will this, I will do this. But that creates a commitment and a relationship with the Lord, to be honest, that most of us aren't used to. We're used to doing what we want, when we want, how we want. And what James is telling us there is saying, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You should start running everything by the Lord. That's something that causes us to change how we think. Back to 2 Corinthians here, and then we'll open this up to some quick questions. So with that being said, if if the finances and the resources aren't ours, let's finish this up here real quick in 2 Corinthians 9. We're supposed to give cheerfully, because look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that you will always have all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So once again, if you are giving and you're concerned about, well, Lord, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy, the the finances. God just promised you in verse 8 that you will always have abundance. Abundance. How does we know this? Because verse 9, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Righteousness. Please note, it does not say increase increase the fruits of your house, your car, your wallet, your checkbook. Increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, see, when you help out, you're helping the church, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. So, Lord, the way I want to show you thankfulness is to stop and say, it's not about me, it's about you. I'm not looking for what I get back, because you're going to meet my needs, you're going to take care of me, and what a blessing that is. That's what you see in Ezra chapter 2, these people giving of everything to say, Lord, it's yours. That's what you see here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Lord, it's yours. I tell you, I hope that you'll prayerfully consider as you leave this building tonight to stop and say, it's not mine. It's not my house. It's not my car. It's not my finances. It's not my time. Because I'm willing to bet if you live in that mindset that it's yours, there never is the complete joy and peace you're looking for because you're always scratching and clawing trying to hold on to something in this world. Man, when you just totally give it over to the Lord, it's so freeing. So absolutely freeing. All right, anybody got any quick questions comments about here? Yeah, Megan. Um, I hope I can remember all these Okay. Um, so you remember That's okay. I have a lot of <laughs> That's why when I teach, I leave a pen up here, because I can write stuff down. Sometimes at the Sunday morning at the eight thirty service, like that was a really good point. I need to write that down. That's not me because I know I will not remember that at the ten. So I will make a quick note and I'll put a little thank you, Lord, beside that. So <laughs> you remember one, or do you just want to wait to afterwards? All right. um, you said something about the walls, com- the, the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. The walls come from down. You're right. Let the walls fall down? Slow fade. Right, slow fade, okay. So how are you supposed to know? Well, what, what Megan's asking there, she said it's kind of like a slow fade, how are you supposed to know? One of the most overlooked, beautiful things that the Lord has given us is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible promises us in John fourteen, fifteen, and 16 that the Holy Spirit will convict us when we start straying off the path. So we will hear it, we will know it, we will feel it. God will reveal that to us. The only question is coming up is, do we have ears to hear what he's saying? The Lord will not yell at us. He will not scream it at us. He will very, through the Spirit, through worship, through the Word, or just the Spirit, he will tell you, you're starting to get off track. I've seen it in my life. I know it happens. You just start feeling that conviction of, Lord, this is not where I should be. This is not what I should be watching. This is not how I should be spending my free time. This should not. Now the question is am I gonna listen or obey or am I just gonna keep going down that path? The Holy Spirit will convict us. Okay. Now every move you make is you turn to God. You turn to God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't make moves on your own, right. just move forward to that. Does that make any sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's what it's supposed to be. It becomes such a relationship with the Lord if I truly look at it that it's not my life. If it's the Lord's life, then, then every step I take is supposed to be directed by Him. So that means I'm always open. Always open to ministry. Always open to whatever the Lord has in store. And, and you know what? It's a learning process. Um, you don't get it the first time. I don't get it the first time. You know, I'll give you a quick example of something in my life here. Uh, you know, Pastor George came out a couple of weeks ago and he started talking about, you know, the ministry to the Muslims. And just starting up conversations with Muslims as you're talking to them and just letting the Lord open. And he gave some, some ideas that you could say. You could go up to him and say, you know, salam, which is an Arabic, Peace. And, you know, find out what country they're from, and then you can say, I'm praying for that country, and just start these conversations. So a couple weeks ago, we were at the park in Bowling Green, and I saw a couple there, and I could tell they were Muslims. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go up and just start a conversation. So the, the father and I just started walking back about the same time, just started talking to him. You know, what's your name? My name is James, etc. And, you know, I could tell he was Arabic, so I said, Salam, you know, peace. And we just started talking, and I said, so, so where are you from? And he was from Iraq. So I said, "Oh, I pray for Iraq," because that's what George said. George said, "Tell them you pray for Iraq; they will be so appreciative of that." So I said, "I, pr- I pray for Iraq." He said, "Oh, thank you, thank you." And then I thought, "I don't know what I'm supposed to say now." So <laughs> I pray for Iraq and salam and and I said, "Oh, looks like you're grilling out," and because uh, he—that's yeah, what he was—and that was kind of the end of the conversation. And I, I went home from that conversation on the way home from BJ. I told Dawn, "I said, man." just feel like I really dropped the ball there. I did what I'm supposed to do. I, I, I said my one Arabic word. I said, I'm praying for your country. And then I said, okay. And I thought, I really, it was just bugging me. I haven't felt this way in a long time. Like, I really just dropped the ball. Just dropped the ball. So, now, Tuesday, we go to get groceries over in Bowling Green. And we're in the aisle. And here comes another Muslim family. And I said, okay, round two. Lord, I, I'm ready. Because I I was praying, what we do before we leave the home is we said, Lord, we just want to represent you to one person. That's how we look at it. We're a vapor, so when we go to town to get groceries, it's not about getting groceries. It's about representing you. And, And just, Lord, give us one opportunity to represent you. So I go up to him. He has a really cute little guy. And I said, oh, I said, you know, you got a cute little boy. What's your boy's name? And his son's name was Muhammad. And I said, oh, okay, Muhammad. And he goes, like the boxer. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, anyway, so I, and I said, um, so I said, salam. I said my Arabic word, and he goes, oh, salam so back, and he said a few things in Arabic, and I, you know, I said, what's your name, and his name was, the English translation is Moses, it was like Muzas or something like that, and I said, oh, where are you from? He says, I'm from Saudi Arabia, okay, now, the last time, I just said, oh, I pray for Saudi Arabia, okay, so this time, round two, oh, as a Christian, I pray for Saudi Arabia, See, I threw in the word Christian, like, okay, good, amen. And so now, he's like, oh, thank you, and, you know, we need to pray for peace. And I said, okay, peace. In my mind, the Holy Spirit just said that he's the God of peace. And I said, aren't you thankful? I said, the Bible talks about that the Lord, that God is the God of peace. And then he said, oh, yes, that's what we need, peace. We need the God of peace. And I realized, hold on a second. He's still thinking that his God and my God are the same God. So at this time, I thought, okay, then I said, you know what else the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I said, okay, now we're going to start taking this and, and building this in, Bring in the name of Christ, Bring in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's not just a prophet. There's something more to him. The reason I, I tell you this story is to say, like what Megan was saying there, it's a process of growing. And there's going to be times where you go and you're going to feel like you completely, utterly just drop the ball. I remember I used to think that the greatest thing I could do as a spiritual leader of my home was do devotions right before we go to bed. So some days that works. Other days that's the worst idea you could ever have. Everybody's tired. They want to go to bed. You name it. And so what we started happening is I'd get home from church Wednesday. And some Wednesdays I don't get home till after 10 o'clock at night. Well, my kids are in bed. I miss devotions. Or I'll get home early and everybody's ready to go to bed. It's like, I don't care you want to go to bed. We're going to learn about Jesus right here, right now. You have to. So we started learning, why not just do devotions earlier in the day? And it's just this constant growing process. Even in marriage, Dawn and I have been married over 20 years. And then there's something that I think that we've just learned this year where it's like, wow, this is just taken away a lot of little arguments and fights and where it's this constant learning thing. So as Megan was mentioning earlier about constantly growing in the Lord, that's what it is. Is Lord, I, okay, I've learned now how to better represent you to the Lord. I've learned now that I'm just a vapor and, and it's not about me. I mean, for you that are going to go to work tomorrow, you're not going to work. You're going to the mission field to represent Jesus to every person you run into. And the neat thing about it is you get paid to do that. And then when you come home, Hopefully you come home to other Christians that you get to be encouraged and fellowship with. And if you don't come home to that, you get to come home to another mission field to represent the Lord. This is what we get to do. we got to get past the here and now, get focused on eternity, and realize the only thing that matters are souls either going to heaven or hell. That's really all that matters. And when we get together as a body of Christ on our Sunday or Wednesday, it does not matter how many people come. It does not matter how many seats are filled. What matters is the people that are coming. Are we encouraging them and equipping them to go deeper in the walking relationship with Christ? That's all that matters. So I don't even know how we got on that, but there you go. Anybody else got any other uh, questions, comments here about anything here so far in Ezra 2 or, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Okay. All right. Kind of running out of time here a little bit. I got to uh, jump back here to Ezra chapter 2. I just want to throw this in. If you're a note taker, please note verse 63. The ermim and the thumim. Oh, fascinating things here. What this was is that the high priest had this breastplate. and It was very fancy. And it had different color stones. One color for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's kind of fascinating. But he also had this thing here called the Ermum and the thumim. It literally means lights and perfection. Now, we don't know exactly how this worked. What we can kind of figure what we think worked was this. It was either in the breastplate itself that he wore, or maybe in a bag or something that he carried with it. Now, there's a couple different ideas, and the Bible is not clear on it. Some people believe that the lights would actually light up, hence lights and perfection. Some actually believe that it was just a bag of a white stone and a black stone. And so what would happen is you would go up to the high priest, and you see this happening here with some of the kings in Israel, that they would have to have a decision, and they would ask for the ermum and the Thummim. And so the high priest would come, and it's like, should we invade Philistines? You stick your hand in the bag, and you pull out the white stone. Oh, white means Yes. So that means God is leading us to do that. So what has happened is here, there are some people coming back from the captivity that they don't know their genealogy. And they say, hey, we're priests. Yeah, but we don't really know if we're priests or not because we've been in captivity for seven years. So we've got to contact the Irmum and the Thummim real quick to make sure. Now, why am I mentioning this to you? That's how you would make big decisions back in the Old Testament. Some people hear this and they love it. Can you imagine having a little bag with you everywhere you went? It's like they offered me that job. What should I do? I don't know. Lord, yes or no, stick your hand in the bag. It's, they, they treat it like some little magic eight ball type thing. But you know what? The problem is, if you lived in the Old Testament, and you were just a regular guy, and you needed to make a big decision, first off, you'd have to travel all the way to the temple. You would have to hope that you could get a chance to talk to the high priest. You'd have to hope that the high priest would give you time to even let, stick the hand in the bag. There's no way you'd be able to do that. Please never take for granted the relationship you have with Christ where the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And that we just read in Hebrews in our last study that you can boldly go to the throne of grace anytime you want. The veil has been torn. And so now through prayer, through fasting, through worship, through the word, you can now seek the Lord. We'll give you wisdom on any decision you need. Now the problem is, this Old Testament thing sounds a whole lot easier. Very little prayer effort involved. But there is no access to God. What you have today, the Lord wants you to spend more time with him, seeking him but it also means more time with access to Him. It's a real blessing. Never try to speed up the decision process. I remember when I first took over out here, I had a very wise person tell me one time that there was an opportunity that arrived for us as a church, and it was a quick, fast decision. And I just remember, you know, going to the board real quick, saying, hey, we got to decide right now. I just remember when the board members saying, you know, God's never in a hurry, is He? And that's something I've kept for the last 20 years, that if I feel forced, pushed, pressured, in a quick decision... Yeah, I just need to step back because, you know, my God's not in a hurry. And just let the Lord lead. So, if you're seeking the Lord on something really big, he's not in a hurry. Spend the time with him and prayer and fasting and worship. It may be days, weeks, months, dare I say, maybe even years. But that's part of your growth with him. Hey, let's finish up chapter 3 real quick if we can. Um, Actually, we're not going to have time to finish up chapter 3. So, I... My intentions were last week to do one and two, we did one. My intentions this week were to do two and three, and we did two. So this quick little book is taking a lot longer, but I think you guys have been with me long enough to know that that is how we roll out here. So we'll get into Chapter 3 next week. Um, Any final quick questions, comments here about anything here in Ezra Chapter 2? All right. Hey, uh, I'll be available over here for prayer. If anybody wants uh, to have a time of prayer, we'd we'll be more than welcome to pray with you. If I don't get a chance to shake your hand, I'm glad you can make it out here tonight. I hope you had a blessed time with the food and fellowship. And I hope that you're willing to go home and really just stop and say, Okay, Lord, you, you put these people's names in here for a reason because you saw the sacrifice and work they were willing to do with that. And, Lord, we want that same mindset. The Lord sees and notices. Remember, there's all these verses in the Bible. It's not about being a man pleaser. It's about being a God pleaser. Lord, how can I live for you? That's what it comes down to. Hey, would you guys stand with me as we pray? (sighs) Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you um, thankful. Just thankful for the time to be here tonight on a rainy, wet April evening. But we got a chance to come and worship you, fellowship with you. And just be blessed to go deeper in you. Lord I pray that you would as we leave this building. We leave as servants. We leave as missionaries. We leave just Lord representing you in all that we say and do. Thank you for your time. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.